thank you, Yash, for sharing your story. Thank you, Abigail. I don't know if Abigail is here for putting it together. Uh, so powerful. Uh, open up your Bible to Acts chapter 10 and 11. Last week we did five chapters. This week we're only going to do two. So, Our human instinct is to make ourselves as comfortable as possible. Our human instinct is to make ourselves as comfortable as possible in every situation. I recently joined the gym again. It's been, it's been quite a while. So I didn't want to just jump in and pretend that I need to be the Navy SEAL. So my first workout, I was just going to walk an hour on the treadmill. And so I go and, and, and get everything set up. The, the last time that I was a member of a gym, you could not log into your Netflix account through the treadmill. But now you can. That is a real deal. And so I logged in and started my walk. I was going to walk an hour. About 20 minutes in, I've got a nice glisten going. It's not sweat. I'm not there, really, ever. I never got the sweat, but the, 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 I was looking shiny. And I'm feeling pretty good about myself because, you know, hey, I'm working out. I'm back in the gym. This is what people have told me that I should be doing. And here I am. This is, I'm doing good. And I look two treadmills down. There is another sister who is their gym member. She is pushing 85 at least. And I look onto her screen and she is at a better pace and a steeper incline than I was. And so what I realize is that even when I'm trying to work out, I'm still trying to make myself as comfortable as possible because that's just our human nature. It's our human nature to do that. And we especially, and maybe most of all, make ourselves comfortable by who we spend our time with. And that starts with you in the center of that circle. Um, you make yourself comfortable. If, if you'll put the next slide up there for me. Right. You may not even like, like yourself really. In fact, you may have more negative talk than positive talk, just your interior, in, interior dialogue. But you know how to make yourself comfortable. Outside of that, we're comfortable around our family, some of us, and then our friends, um, then you have people that you share interest with. L look at the people you spend most of your time with, real heart friends. I bet you have a lot in common. Um, I bet your kids are the same age if you have kids. Uh, I, I bet your hobbies are somewhat the same. Right? Outside of that, there's education. Now, you may be the exception to the rule, but statistically speaking, those who you are closest to have the same level of education as you. Be very unlikely, again, you may be the exception of the rule, uh, that if you are a college graduate, that you could call somebody who did not graduate high school a close friend. Again, you may be the exception, I hope that you are, but statistically speaking, we congregate together with people who have the same education level as us, which then leads to the next circle. We spend a lot of time with people who are able to live the same lifestyle as us. Uh, then outside of that, our political beliefs. Now, I don't know if this has always been true. I think it is becoming more and more true. It is hard for us to imagine being heart-level friends with people who view the role of government and how that should go much differently than us. In fact, there's a big concern within the American church that uh, churches will not survive this election year because it, it just seems preposterous that we could all be in the same church family and go with different motives and outcomes out, out of the, the voting booth. Now, that's not going to happen 
here. We're all going to stay together because what unites us is not our worldview. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so wherever you cast your vote or send it in or mail it in for whoever, wherever, at the end of the day, all of our hope is in him. And that should be binding us together. But then you take that into the real world. Imagine being best friends with somebody who votes differently than you. I bet that that would be hard. And then maybe most of all, we seem to find a lot of comfort in being around people who are like us when it comes to our ethnicity. If you have a diverse set of friends, I bet that somewhere along the way you made an intentional choice that you were going to be a person who has a diverse set of friends. That isn't something that really happens naturally for many of us. And we find a lot of comfort in these circles. But what happens in Acts chapters 10 and 11, thank God, is the gospel of Jesus Christ breaks out of the circles of comfort of the very first Christians. And the stakes are very high for most of us. I don't know how many of us have a Jewish ethnic heritage in here, but if you don't, then you are a Gentile. And if not for Acts chapter 10 and 11, you may not have ever heard of Jesus. But there were a few of his followers who broke out of their circles. And I want to talk about it tonight. Acts chapters 10 and 11. In Acts chapter 10, we won't read it word for word, but a couple of things are happening at the same time. There is a God-fearing man. He is a Gentile. He works for the Roman government. He is a Roman soldier, a centurion, has lots of power and authority, but he believes in the God of Israel, and he's a good man, and he's a righteous man, and, he's, and, he, and he wants to do the right thing. And God receives his offering of righteousness and sends an angel to him to say, I, I, I see you, you believe in me, that's half the story, and I'm going to send to you somebody to tell you the rest of the story, that God is saving the world through his son, Jesus of Nazareth. So send an envoy to Simon Peter, and he's going to come back, he's going to tell you everything that you need to know. Meanwhile, Peter goes up on a roof to pray, and while he's up there, he falls into a trance, Acts chapter 10 says, and he gets this vision of this giant sheet. It's kind of a, a weird vision, and there are these animals in it, and God says to him, kill and eat. And Peter knows he's not allowed to eat those animals because of the Old Testament law that was outside of what he was allowed to do. And he says back to God, no, I'm not going to. Listen, rule of thumb, when God says to do something, you go, okay. But Peter doesn't. He goes, no, I've never eaten anything un impure or unclean. And God says, what I have made, do not call unclean. And the vision happens three times. Peter is puzzled about what this means. Meanwhile, downstairs, the envoy from Cornelius has come. We're looking for Simon Peter. Simon goes back to Cornelius' house. There's a whole group of people waiting for him, all of Cornelius' friends and family. And they say, speak to us. God is going to speak to, through you to us. And, and so Peter does. And they all commit themselves to Jesus. They all receive the Holy Spirit in the way that Peter and his friends did back in Acts chapter 2. And then they are all baptized there. Now that feels like a great story, period, end of sentence. Except for Peter goes back to Jerusalem with all of his people and his circle of comfort. And they're like, what are you doing? You're not allowed to go and have meals with Gentile people. And Peter says, no, you don't understand. And he unpacks for them the whole story about Cornelius and the angel. And he's up on the roof and the vision and 
They've received the Holy Spirit the same as us. And so whether we like it or not, they are our brothers and sisters now. Then we get to Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So persecution back in Jerusalem pushes believers in Jesus outside of Jerusalem and Judea. And some of them go all the way to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. But they are only communicating the gospel among the Jewish people. But a couple of them, they go, well, this is good message for us. This should be a good message for everybody. And they share it with Gentiles as well. I brought a map so we're just all picturing the same part of the world. Uh, the, the, the dot at the bottom is Jerusalem. Persecution pushes them up north. Uh, one dot to Phoenicia over to Cyprus, the island in the Mediterranean Sea. And then Antioch, which is uh, on the border of modern day Turkey and Syria. Now, Houston has a lot in common with Antioch. Uh, first, Antioch at the time was the third largest city in the world. There was Rome, there was Alexandria, Egypt, and there was Antioch. Houston, also a very large city. Uh, it was also a port city, but it wasn't on a coast, just like Houston is a port. There's the port of Houston, but we don't actually sit on the coast. In a similar situation, there was a river that led upstream to Antioch, and boats would sail up that river and dock there and do their trading. Antioch had a, uh, was a large city, and it had a reputation of being uh, dangerous and having, in the words of one scholar, moral laxity. Now, you don't know this because you live in Houston, but Houston also has that same reputation. I know that because I grew up in God's country up in southwest Missouri, and every summer my little church would send teenage missionaries down here to help you guys. <laughs> And I did that a few summers. That's how I ended up in Houston. And we used to, I mean, fast and pray and gear up spiritually to come and minister to you all. I mean, really, right? Any metropolitan area is going to carry with it a, a, a reputation of, oh man, that's a, there's a lot of wickedness happening there. And that was true in Antioch. Uh, Antioch also was a, a metropolitan city that had a, a ton of Greek and Roman influence, but it sat on the edge of the Syrian desert. And so it sort of had one foot in the, 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 the metropolitan and Greek culture, and it had its other foot in um, this kind of country desert lifestyle. And, and Texas feels that same way. Houston obviously is a, a, a large metro area. We have a Gucci store. Maybe we have more than one. It's been a while since I've wandered in there. Um, <laughs> but if you drive an hour outside of Houston and uh, you invite those folks to the Gucci store, they'll be like, no, I knew that Houston was morally lax, just like I had always heard. Right? It sort of sits in, you know, one foot in this metro um, area with lots of culture 
and, and another foot in the Wild West. The, Houston has a lot of, in common with Antioch. Uh, many churches, hundreds of thousands of churches throughout time have named themselves after this church in Antioch, and for good reason, because they are a church worth imitating, because it was there that the gospel broke out of circles of comfort. And again, I cannot state it any more clearly. Without this church, you would not be in the faith. So I figure their culture should be worth imitating if possible. So a few things that we can learn from the Antioch church. If you're going to write some things down, this would be what I would ask you to write down. Number one, the Antioch church had a history of persecution. The Antioch church had a history of persecution. Verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenician, Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Now turn a few pages to the left to Acts chapter 8. We'll see where that persecution started. Stephen was one of the first deacons named in the Jerusalem church. He was bold about his faith in Christ. Like bold, bold. And, and he was stoned to death. That's Acts chapter 6 and 7. And chapter 8 starts like this. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul, who we will later know as Paul, because he's going to have a dramatic conversion experience in chapter 9, but right now we're in chapter 8. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Now, on the surface, you might think, well, what does that really have to do with us? We obviously... There's no organized persecution against us here. In fact, we have, for most of our lives, I'm, I'm guessing for everyone in here, have really enjoyed the support of government structures here in America. I don't know if you saw this, but this past week, just a couple of days ago, the president signed uh, some kind of executive order to protect uh, prayer in school, uh, not just Christian prayer, obviously, but just prayer and religious groups that are loosely affiliated with the school. He signed an order to protect that and encourage that more and more. And that is the America that most of us have grown up in, one where the government of America and the church in America work hand in hand. And that was very intentional. The, the countercultural revolution in the 1960s, free love, free sex, free drugs, uh, created a stirring in pastors like me in the early 1970s. So, you know, this is not ideally how America is going to operate. And so they started to form a, 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 what they called a moral majority. And their plan was to use government power and influence to expand the message of Christ and that America ultimately would align itself with the morals that come from the Bible. And lots of great things have happened because they did that. I mean, just even thinking practically, we enjoy as a church tax-exempt status. The church saves hundreds of thousands of dollars because we don't have to pay property tax. And the value of this street can go up and up and up and up. And we'll never have to worry about affording it because of a partnership between the American church and American government. Um, you, when you give to a, a church, you get 
a tax benefit for that. And if you're not taking advantage of that, I feel like my dad would tell you to take advantage of that. Uh, not my dad, actually. My mom did our taxes. My mom would tell you to take advantage of that because there's a, a, a partnership between the American government and the American church and, and even greater things than that. The protection of human life is a great thing. Support government support for Christian hospitals and Christian children's homes and Christian ministries. I mean, we could go on and on and on of the good things that have come from that. I think there has been at least one unintended consequence of that, side effect of that, that we should be aware of. Because the Antioch church, it just had one goal. They had no hope of any government really coming to their aid to help them accomplish their mission. Uh, the followers of Christ were such a small percentage of people, it, it, it would have been less than 1%. So, and then plus Caesar was not the kind of governing ruler that was like, what does everybody think? And, um, you know, even uh, a generation from the Antioch church that we're talking about today, uh, during Nero's reign of the Roman Empire, there's going to be this fire that breaks out in Rome. And people look to him because he's in charge of it all. And, and so he just pointed the finger at the Christians because that's how, how on the periphery they were of the culture. No one would care that the Christians were being blamed. And another great persecution broke out among Christians because Nero didn't want blamed for this fire. So they had no hope of any kind of help when it came to the gospel. So they just had one goal, to live out and spread the message that Jesus is Lord, to live it out to this is what I believe and what I believe is going to affect what I do, to live it out and to spread the message. That was their only goal. We have, and I think I speak for most of us in here, we have inherited two goals here in the American church. The first one is the same, to live out and spread the message that Jesus is Lord. But the second, because some people made decisions long, long, long time ago before any of us were really thinking about it, to use the government to help us spread the message, now we have a second goal, which is to keep people elected who will help us do that. And that's fine on the surface. Except for uh, earlier this week, uh, we, needed, we needed to upgrade our internet service. Just follow me here. Uh, and Because uh, I was getting one megabyte per second. I was paying for 12. I was only getting one. And I was getting better Netflix streaming on my treadmill than I was at home. And so I called AT&T and we set up the appointment. Last question I asked them before they showed up the next day. Listen, are they going to have everything they need on their van slash truck to install my internet? Yes. Okay. They come the next day. Not only do they have to come back, they got to come back twice. So my life is not very hard. I think I'm pretty honest about that. Uh, so great sense of injustice flares up in me, so I call him. <laughs> Amanda tells me while I'm at work, they're going to have to come back. I'm on the phone. Listen, hey, listen. I always say, I know it's not your fault. I know it's not your fault, but here's the deal. I asked. He said it was going to be great. It's not great. So I, listen, I get it. It's going to take couple of weeks to get the, the new thing and whatever. I get that. But I also know that there is a little button on your computer screen that will make my internet go faster. And all I'm asking you to do for the next 
12 days is just hit that little button for me. I know it's there. You can click it. It says 12 right now, but just goose it to 24. That's all I'm asking you to do. Just for two weeks, just goose it. But you know how a conversation, and it's not this person's fault. Bless them. Not their fault. I don't know whose fault it is. Satan's fault. But we spend the first 15 minutes of the conversation just, uh, just trying to prove that I am this person that they're talking to, you know. And oh, man. Whew. But I knew I was going to be up here in front of you today. And I've been telling you all year to love your neighbor as yourself. And I'm like, mm, I got to love this guy as myself. But he is an obstacle <laughs> to me getting what I want. And it is hard to love people who you view as obstacles. Amen? Yeah. Now we're going back to we have made a partnership with the American government. We have inherited two goals. The second goal is to use the government to expand the message of Christ. So now we are on the hook for making sure that people are in office locally, state level, national level to help us do that. But we live in a very divided country. So now, right now, if we are thinking about goal number two, half of our neighbors in the United States of America are not people to love. They are obstacles to accomplishing our goal. And we've already, amen, that it's hard to love obstacles. And I don't have a solution. It's complicated and nuanced. All I know is that our mandate is to love our neighbor as ourself. And so we have inherited all this. So we need to guard ourselves because we, our church was not planted with a seed of persecution like the Antioch church was. We have to now figure out how really at the end of the day we can all agree we still just got one goal. And God in his sovereign heaven can decide how that one goal is accomplished. But we just probably just need one goal. I feel like I threaded the needle pretty good there, so I'm going to move on. It's perilous bringing up the word government and church. Number two, the Lord's hand was with the Antioch church. The Lord's hand was with the Antioch church. Verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Verse 23, when he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done. God is working in Antioch. People are believing. They're turning. They're repenting. They're changing their lives because of the message of Christ's life, death, resurrection, ascension, return, his lordship. So we want that, right? I mean, we want it as a church. We want the hand of the Lord to be with us. And you're probably thinking about you personally and the needs that you have right now. Man, it'd be awesome if God's hand was with us. How do I get that? And most of us probably, if we start going down the path of how do I guarantee that the Lord's hand will be with me? You remember the game Twister when we were kids? Some of you grew up in Instagram, so some of us a little bit older, right? It's, it's laid, laid out. You got the colors there. Somebody spins the wheel. And if the wheel goes blue, you got to figure out how to get your foot on the blue, right? And then you spin the wheel again and it's yellow and you got to figure out how to get your other foot on the yellow. And then there's a red one. This is as far as I go. I've only been to the gym once 
But you get the picture, right? You're just, and, and we do that. And pastors like me, and God help me if I have done this, what we have said to you is, you want God's hand? Then you got to read your Bible. You want God's hand? You got to figure out how to pray more. You need God's hand? You got to give to local ministries. And what happens is we'll have a week or a day or a month where it feels like we've got it perfect. And then pastors like me tell you to freeze. Don't move because you are in the posture of blessing. And at least, at least 10% of us in here right now, tonight, as we sit here, are, are on the edge of faith. And you have been mulling over if I sort of give up on the organized part of it, I don't want to give up my faith in Jesus, but if I just sort of give up on all the extras, the church, the reading, the, all of that, if I just let go of that, will I be fine? Because you're tired. You feel all stretched out. You feel like some spiritual authority has told you not to move, don't breathe, or God's going to remove his blessing. It's, it's always been a fact. Twister is not that fun after a while. <laughs> and that kind of view of God, well, it's not real. And here's how I know it's not real. Because of what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 41. Don't turn there unless you're fast. But verse 10. So do not fear, for I am with you. God says, do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And then a few verses down, verse 13. For I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. So in this one passage, Isaiah 41 we see God's righteous right hand holding us up and we see him grabbing our right hand. Right, we have three kids. In a couple of weeks, they'll be 14, 11, and four. We hold the hand of the four-year-old every day. We get out of the car, boom. Our brain is small, not to be trusted in a parking lot. <laughs> She's acting up, boom, give me that hand. She's four and she's sweet still and she still likes us. So she often will just hold our hands just because. Our 14-year-old is on the other end of that spectrum and probably so. You know, he's a 14-year-old boy. I don't, you know, I don't know if he should be holding my hand or not. And then the 11-year-old is somewhere in the middle. But because, because we hold Willa's hand all the time because she's four, I will tell you this right now. If either one of those big kids tonight at dinner reach over and offer me their hand, I would give all the money that I have to just hold it for a while. I bet if you're a parent of an adult child in here, that would be nice. Even some of us have a wound and... It just feels good right now because they're not in the room to just imagine holding your parents' hand again. 
It's like a bomb to your soul. And you remember what Jesus said? If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your heavenly father know how to give good gifts to his children? We don't have to wonder and ask, how do I get the hand of God to be on our church or on our lives? Let's reach out for it. And Isaiah has told us he'll reach down and grab it. But like we did as children, I think we somehow feel like we should outgrow that. What God does with his hand and the specific and how many people come to the Lord and all of that, we'll let him be the sovereign judge and decider of that. But we don't have to wonder today where to put our feet so that his hand might be with us. Just put your hand up in the air. Number three, the Antioch church was filled with faith and the Holy Spirit. This is primarily through Barnabas who was sent to them. Verse 24, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, but I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Being filled with the Spirit means being full of the life of God through the Spirit of God who dwells in you. Jesus ascended into heaven so he could no longer be with his disciples anymore, but he says, I'm not leaving you alone. I'm actually going to be just as present with you as I've ever been. I'm going to be with you by the Spirit of God. And thank God for that because Jesus could only have so many people surrounding him physically, but because he is with us through the Spirit, we all have access to him. We have the same access to Jesus that Peter and James and John did. Right? And because we have God's Spirit living in us, the presence of Christ with us, we're able to continue on in his ministry. That's why he was able to say to the disciples, listen, you think I've done some great things. You're going to actually do greater things than I've done. And we read about a lot of those things in the book of Acts. And once we have God's life in us, then we bear the fruit of God's life. That's what Galatians chapter 5 verse 22 says. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's a reason why it says that Barnabas was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Because when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, then you are going to be filled with faith. Because it is a fruit of the life of God inside of you. And it also says that he's a good man. And one of the fruits of the Spirit is goodness. He was worthy of honor. It was providential that the church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas to Antioch. Because Barnabas was a Jewish man, but he grew up in that island we were talking about, Cyprus. If you go back and read chapter 4, in fact, let's just read it together real quick. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Imagine being so good at something, some spiritual something, that your friends are like, we're not going to call you by your name anymore. We're just going to call you daughter of faith or son of love or daughter of passing the offering. I don't know. It's just something. You know. 
Barnabas was such an encourager. They're like, Joseph, not a good name anymore. Barnabas is your new name. And he received it. He was a Jewish man. He was a Levite. He was from the tribe of Levi, but he was from Cyprus, that island that we mentioned, filled with Greek culture under Roman control. And here's why this was important. Because Jesus was Jewish. All of Jesus' original uh, followers were Jewish. The, the people who heard the first sermon from, in the first church service, quote unquote, were all Jewish. The people who first received the Holy Spirit were Jewish. And just like us, they tended to be in circles that provided them a lot of comfort. But Barnabas was a Jewish man who lived, I'm sure, in a tight-knit Jewish com community, but he lived in a Greek island. So he was around people that were different than him in the market and, 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 and every day rubbing shoulders with people different than him. And because of that, I believe that Barnabas had a wide net of compassion. The, the people in Jerusalem, I think they had a much smaller net of compassion because of where they lived, their experience and view of Gentile people. And imagine if they had sent the wrong person to Antioch. No, 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 no. You got to shut all this down. But Barnabas said, no, this is good. He blessed it. And I don't know how big your net of compassion is today. I grew up in Springfield, Missouri. It's the least diverse place on planet Earth. I don't know that statistically, but I'm pretty sure. <laughs> and I think that I grew up with a very small net of compassion. Didn't mean to do that, really. Just, it's where I was from. And so maybe that's your story. If you're just really gut level honest, you have spent most of your time in your circles of comfort. And I want to encourage us all to widen our nets of compassion. Because when Jesus went to spread the message of his kingdom on every page in the Gospels is an act of compassion. There are lots of ways to widen your net. You can educate yourself tomorrow as Martin Luther King Day. And, and if all you know about MLK and the civil rights movement has come from movies or osmosis, I'd encourage you to pick up a book and read what it was like in the 1960s in the United States of America for people of color. Maybe part two is read what it's like to be a person of color in 2020 in the United States of America. Educate yourself. You can educate yourself through friendships. It's the best possible way to widen your net of compassion is to step outside of your circle of comfort. And wouldn't you know it, there is a huge blessing waiting on you on the outside of your circle of comfort. And then finally, the Antioch Church were students. Verse 25 then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. Now here's the cool pattern, if you've caught it. Verse 21, it says, a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Verse 24, a great number of people were brought to the Lord. And verse 26, they taught great numbers of people. So Luke, as he writes Acts, is giving us the impression that everyone who came to faith in the Lord also became a student of the Lord. And we talked about that last week or the week before. We got to re-enroll in the school of Jesus. We got to be learners. We got to keep growing. 
Have you been added to the number of believers? Then welcome to class. We're all students. We're all learning. As Jesus teaches us his way, we see in verse 23, one of the lessons that Barnabas taught them. He encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. And speaking of that, verse 26, and this is where we're done. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Now, up until this not time, there was not a real name for followers of Jesus. The closest we get is in Acts chapter 9. Saul slash Paul is persecuting the church. It says, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way. So that's what they used to call Christians. They're members of the way. They belong to the way. But this is the first time that we get a name for ourselves. And there's lots of debate about why the people of Antioch called them Christians. You remember when Jesus was born around 4 BC or so, the Herods were king. Herod the Great. Wise men went and saw Herod the Great. Well, his sons also became kings and local rulers, and they also had the name Herod. That wasn't actually their name. That was like their royal name. I'm the Prince of Wales, you know, Herod, same idea. Uh, people didn't like the Herods at all, really, because they weren't even Jewish. Um, the, the Romans had handpicked them and said, you'll do just fine. You'll be our local puppet. And they supported their reigns with troops. So the people, not big fans of the Herods at all. But there was a small group of people who were loyal to them, and they were known as the Herodians. They're actually mentioned in the Gospels a few times. It's a funny name, isn't it? Herodians. So some scholars believe that up in Antioch, they were looking at the followers of Jesus, and they're like, Christians. This is a group of people who are loyal to Jesus the Christ. Now, in our culture, Christian is an adjective or an adverb. It's just something that describes something else that we have or do. Christian school, Christian music, Christian movies, Christian TV shows, Christian comedians, Christian universities, Christian, I mean, you can go on and on, and Christian politicians, Christian lobbying groups, Christian, that's good. But the problem with having Christian just be a description of another word is there might be a time in your life where you feel tempted to let your loyalty drift from the first word to the second word. If you have a Christian business, it's great until you're tempted to believe in the business instead of the Christ. I think we should just reclaim that word back. It's not a description of anything anymore. It's a title for those who are loyal, dedicated to Jesus the Christ. This is the culture of the Antioch Christians, and it would be a fantastic thing if it were the culture of the family here at Bayou City. So the action step for all of us this week, for all of you type A people, is God is going to give you, I prayed for it, and so I believe God's going to answer my prayer. God has, is going to offer you an opportunity this week to step outside of your circle of comfort. And I want to encourage you to follow the Christ outside of it. Let's pray.